Hello and welcome to another episode of the Shock Doctors podcast. I'm Jim Smith. I'm Matt Daisy. And we are the Shock Doctors. In this episode, we're going to be discussing Lord of Misrule, which is a way cooler title than it is a movie, I think. Yeah, it's by William Brent Bell, our old uh, arch nemesis. W- one of Will- our arch nemeses. Yeah, Willie Barbells. <laughs> he, uh... <laughs> it's. I think it's his best movie, and I think I like it a little more than you did, although it is. I'm grading on a curve because he is a prominent member of our rogues gallery, and it should be noted that I am such an easy lay for folk horror that he could dangle his balls in my face, and if he just strapped some, like, creepy antlers to them, I'd probably be like, ooh, you know, there's something to that. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm looking back over his filmography. Well, it's, it's got to be this or The Boy, I figure. And The yeah. Boy is a movie that I would call merely not bad, whereas this is, I think, a little bit good, at least up to a point. The ending is kind of a slap in the face. I think I would flip-flop them. I... Okay would say i'm but i'm not even sure i would call the boy a little bit good i would just (laughs) say well okay i gave the boy a five out of ten on imdb and this definitely does not rise to that level his filmography includes his first film was stay alive which is a movie about a haunted video game i haven't seen it and i haven't seen his follow-up and I haven't seen a movie that he did in 2021 that I've already forgotten the name of. I don't have it in front of him. But I was do I was doing this exact thing not an hour ago. So um, his follow up was, was else, actually most of it for the podcast. Right. <laughs> his next movie immediately well it wasn't it was six years later after Stay Alive was The Devil Inside, which we watched together. Well, I stand corrected. Then. But after that is were W E R. Although it might be were, as in werewolf. I really don't know anything about it. I also haven't seen it. And then we have The Boy, Brahms The Boy 2, Separation, which I think was a possible entry on our docket at one point, and then it was only showing at like one movie, th- and I decided I didn't give a shit. Well, I had a hell of a time tracking down today's offering as well. I actually had to pay six of my hard-earned dollars for it which i virtually never do so i was i was pleased that i liked it at all because it makes you know it makes that sting a little less yeah and lest we forget his most recent film prior to this was orphan first kill yeah which I, is I, trash. Had, I had i had forgotten that not the movie but that he had directed it yeah well it, because again we group them all together. It's William Brent Bell, Jeff Wadlow, and Adam Robitel, and I never have a firm grasp on which shitty podcast episodes they were responsible for. Yeah. Adam Robitel has been a little sequestered from the others in my mind lately, just because the past few years he's been hard at work on the Escape Room cinematic universe. <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. But he may have, if, it had, if he had emerged from that and done something else, it might have, you know, very easily flown under my radar. I hadn't seen Separation because we dropped it from the docket. And what was throwing me off, the reason I thought I hadn't seen two movies at the beginning of his career is because apparently he wrote, directed, produced something in the 90s called Sparkle and Charm, which is not hyperlinked on Wikipedia. <laughs> 
But then again, neither is Lord of Misrule. This movie is only semi-existent. It exists more than Sparkle and Charm, I'd wager. But well, yeah, I, I I'm looking at it on IMDb, Sparkle and Charm, and it looks like one of those just I'm a young filmmaker making a slice of life indie yeah. drama sort of nobody will ever see this movie. Right. It's based on my life. <laughs> But kind at of, the end, at the end, she gets back with me. Right. <laughs> Unlike in real life. It's it's kind of like how I think Mike Flanagan has one or two sort of movies like that prior to, I think, the Oculus short film. And then he did, what, Absentia? Yeah. Yeah. Prior to that, there's two, ah, it's my small town in Massachusetts and I'm in love with a girl sort of movies that, again, who will ever see those? The answer is no one. Right. That's why I like the early stretch of Marble Hornets so much is because all of the footage of Slender Man is like them trying to make a movie exactly like the one you're describing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then Slendy just shows up in the background periodically. But those are st- still my favorite Slender Man medias because it's such a, you know, such a funny little American movie style kind of piece of indie shoestring satire. Anyway. That's getting us back to our fucking salad days. No doubt. On to the business at hand. Lord of Misrule is a folk horror thing. It is, I think, his best movie, but maybe not by a huge margin. And it's the kind of movie that I can't see myself refuting a single point. And this is not going to be another The Turning situation. No. <laughs> uh, I, I, I can't see myself defending it very vigorously. And I don't like the ending. There's a bunch of stuff in it that I don't like, but folk horror is kind of that secret special sauce for me it doesn't have enough anywhere near enough actual meat on the bones to sustain the intrigue after like the first 40 minutes if we're being generous i uh will have more to say about that as we go along and i'm sure after the break real quick there are six user reviews on imdb for lord of misrule five out of ten quite boring two out of ten refund please 2 out of 10, simply awful, and then 3 10 out of 10s. (laughs) One of the best horror movies out there. Lord of Misrule is one of the best horror movies of the year, and just incredible. (laughs) I think incredible is the one that I saw. Do Do they then go on to immediately laud the screenwriter? I would expect nothing less from the venerable Tom DeVille. Yeah, and I I looked up his name, and I've already forgotten what he wrote. He seemed like he had an okay track record, but not like, I I don't know. He wrote The Quiet Ones in 2014, which we saw and was kind of, sort of, okay. Nothing special, yeah. Yeah. Oh, and apparently he wrote The Hallow, which was a little better than that, but still nothing. I've never heard of that. I'm pretty sure we watched it, Matt. If you insist. (laughs) Those are apparently the two movies that he has anything to do with that I've seen prior to. This is someone, the person who wrote that review is either Tom DeVille or his wife. It's either Tom DeVille, right, it's Tom DeVille, Tom DeVille's mother, or someone Tom DeVille should be terribly afraid of. Like, you know, a fanatical... I mean, everybody's got shooters, I guess, but this is this reads like a Tony Scott the fan situation. <laughs> it's like 
I don't know who saw the quiet ones and felt like the radiant light of God was shining upon them. Horror will never be the same. (laughs) Anyway, I barely remember the quiet ones. I think I like Lord of Misrule a little bit better than the quiet ones, so maybe Tom DeVille is is, is coming up in the world. He might have acquired his second shooter today. (laughs) His second stand. But maybe uh, not. We'll see. The basic thrust of the film is that there's this woman who is a vicar in a small rural town in England. Hasn't been there all that long. She has a husband and a 10-year-old daughter. There is some kind of harvest festival that is rapidly approaching. And the girl has been voted in by the townsfolk as the Harvest Angel, I think, is the is the title. So yeah, she's... and when we when we meet her, she's wearing angel wings, uh, and yeah, she has a a key role to play in the pagan pageantry, and then she goes missing, a la the Wicker Man. Yes, and this is a film that suffers dramatically in comparison to the Wicker Man. Not that oh, yes. most, not that most movies wouldn't or anything, right. but the fact that it's got so little to distinguish it in its basic thrust makes it suffer even more as as far as i'm concerned oh yeah i mean we and we are on the same page as far as that goes we open with a sort of credit sequence and we are already all in on the folk horror right from the jump and i am all for that we've got some bard warbling on the soundtrack about you know his bonnie wee bairn or something (laughs) like that (laughs) Yeah, and right, and right away I'm like a like a pig in a mud bath, you know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> feeling myself. And then we get a kind of puzzling title card, not the, the title of the film, more like a intertitle where it says "Day One: The Gift of Hair." Which, <laughs> which, which, Aquarius. There are going to be a few more of these. There's a whole sequence of gifts. Uh, they should not have led with hair because it sounds sillier than the other three. But in any yeah. case, we're then introduced to this family that has moved to this small town. The name of the town is Barrow, but not spelled like a grave. It's like B-E-R-R-O-W. I happened to have the subtitles on. <laughs> I see. So they, they fudged it a little mother's name is rebecca dad's name is henry and the girl's name i think is grace and normally i would be at capacity for names at that point if not a little in excess of my usual capacity were it not for the fact that the dad from the witch is in this and ordinarily i would just call him the dad from the witch that's i'm sure what i called him over and over again when we reviewed brahms the boy 2 which was his previous joint effort with WBB, but his character is named Jocelyn, and that <laughs> yes. also threw me every time it was said aloud. I thought at first, because his last name is like, the character's last name, I mean, is like... Abney. Abney, that's right. I wanted to say, like, Ag... Ag, you know, whatever. Uh, I thought every Agro-crag. time they said... Agro-crag. Yeah, every time they said Jocelyn Agro-crag, I thought that, like, <laughs> we just hadn't met his wife yet. Right. <laughs> <That it> was... <laughs> But all right, his name is Jocelyn. He's sort of, I like his character more so on paper than in execution, especially once we get into sort of the ninth inning of all this. But he's presented at first as being something of a village idiot. He's just a little touch. 
he's uh, local eccentric who everyone just kind of tolerates and we learn that he has a tragedy in his past that made him kind of insane and he plays the lord of misrule in the in day one of four of this harvest festival that's observed annually and the lord of misrule is this sort of topsy-turvy kind of feast of fools like jester character with a sight Mm -hmm. and he is in opposition to another character named i wrote this down galogog yes (laughs) who is a sort of specter of death this tall folk horror hobgoblin (laughs) with you know antlers and long grabby fingers and a cloak and what have you rebecca and henry and grace have been in barrow for i think 10 months is what they said and i think that's the right amount of time for what the screenwriter is trying to achieve because basically the gist of their problem is that they're not settling in and i think that 10 months is Basically, I felt myself feeling grateful that the movie hit the ground running, relatively speaking. It would have been much worse if they had been just moving in, like still unpacking the car, which is how these movies usually start. Sure. Uh, They've been there for 10 months, which is long enough to skip a bunch of that rigmarole, but not so long that they're actually woven into the fabric of this little backwood hamlet. They're still kind of outsiders. So I think that that's clever enough. We see the festivities start to get underway. Oh, first we see Grace, the little kid, who looked like a secret fanning sibling. You know, she looks <laughs> <laughs> like like they cloned Dakota or, or the other one in a lab at some point and then took her off ice. Well, DBs and I were watching it together and they were like, is there a secret fanning that I don't know about? Or is, you know, because obviously, anyway, spitting image or so we thought. The kid gets up to some creepy business where she menaces a bunny rabbit with a pair of scissors. And so you think, okay, I'm watching like a bad seed kind of movie, maybe, where the kid is going to be up to no good, sort of maybe, you know, a children of the corn situation where she's Mm going to be responsible for mishaps around town. Not so. She disappears almost immediately while she is menacing the rabbit. She is being watched from afar by robed figures wearing animal masks who seem to be looking on approvingly. It's hard to say, you know, with the animal masks, but they're not intervening. And this is juxtaposed with her mother, who is the the new vicar, performing a baptism in the town church. And uh, her being the vicar does a lot for the movie for a little while. I kind of feel like a rube admitting this, but of, of course it's ultimately revealed the whole town is in on it. But, you know, her being the newly arrived vicar kind of offset that to a certain extent for me. I thought like, oh, well, they can't all be godless pagans. You know, there's a church and they go to it religiously. (laughs) Right. They're they're there every Sunday listening to her sermons, the protagonist's sermons. But anyway, that winds up being slightly significant. Anyway... Long and the short of it is the kid goes missing first night of the Harvest Festival. Again, one of four. <laughs> and we're, these are broken up with those intertitles, you know, the gift of hair, the gift of blah, blah, blah. We have at this point seen Jocelyn in his Lord of Misrule get up and the kids all react to him like he's a mall Santa, you know. The Lord of Misrule, yay! <laughs> in his Farquad headpiece. <laughs> <laughs> Some of you may die, (laughs) but that is a sacrifice I am willing willing to make. make. (laughs) (laughs) 
it's the same haircut and kind of the same face. Yeah. And it's just yeah. got it's it's just that it has a jester's hat on as opposed to a crown. Otherwise, yeah, it's a straight up Farquad hat. I I can't unsee it now, of course. <laughs> Uh, there's a line that I like where uh, night has fallen and the whole town on mass, the whole community is walking out into a field to have a bonfire. And one of the locals is explaining, oh, yeah, the gist of it is that Gallo Gog shows up every year around harvest time. And then the Lord of Misrule chases them off. We banish him back into the woods or whatever. And what's her name? Rebecca, the vicar, says, oh, it doesn't seem like we're banishing him so much as we're dancing with him, you know. And yeah, <laughs> <laughs> just so, just maybe. Yeah, everyone's cavorting around the bonfire, and there's a creepy little kid, not Grace, some other kid, chanting "Hair, blood, fire, sun." Hair, blood, fire, sun. And as soon as I heard "hair," I was like, "Oh, okay." And at, th- at that point, I stopped even registering the intertitles when they showed up. They show up semi-arbitrarily throughout the rest of the movie. Anyway. Have you seen Grace? Hair, blood, fire, sun. Hair, blood, fire, sun. Real quick point about the intertitles. There are four of them, but it's uh, the gift of hair, the gift Uh of blood, the gift of fire, and then, like, the last night of the festival or something. Yeah, right, exactly. It's not not the gift of the sun. Right, (laughs) because, yeah, I mean... Because pointedly, there's like some kind of an eclipse or some kind of celestial event on the last night where the sun is blacked out. So if anything, it's not a gift of the sun at all. It's quite the opposite. But the whole thing gets confused. I'm pretty sure later on, Jocelyn Witchdad says, you know, <laughs> he, he like does the same chant, but it's in the wrong order. Like the whole the whole sequence gets kind of badly confused by the end of the movie, it mm. seems to me. Anyway, the kid has gone missing, Grace. The mom chases her into the forest. That I didn't care for. She should have just been, like, gone in the blink of an eye. The fact that there's any pursuit kind of mitigates the mystery, I think. You know, she should have just, like, vanished. Not in broad daylight, because the sun has set at this point. But the fact that the the mom, like, trips over a tree root or something and, like, clonks her head and loses sight of her. That I could have done without. Yeah. So then a search is underway. Local police are on the case and everyone is kind of lackadaisical about it except for rebecca including her husband he's actually so nonplussed that i figured he had to be some kind of a guy woodhouse you know he had to be in right because he's a he's a frustrated creative it's established that he's been writing that he's or working on something in an upstairs studio in their house. Yeah. And uh, he's almost done, and he hasn't been bringing home the bacon lately. So I figured writing's on the wall. He's John Cassavetes and Rosemary's Baby. That turns out to not be the case, incredibly, because he's just so unbothered. <laughs> he has the incredibly thankless role of the doubting spouse. Right. You know, he's just constantly, up until the last possible moment and then even like a scene or two after that he just keeps saying things like you sound like a crazy person you know, mm-hmm. it's just like shut up how many of these guys or women either way depending on the the protagonist how, how many of these fucking people do we have to see in these goddamn movies enough right how about you back up your significant other, you fucking asshole. 
Well, and so you figure, incorrectly, as it turns out, that Gallogog or the Lord of Misrule or both have made some kind of a Faustian bargain with them, but apparently he's just an ostrich with his head in the sand. So a thankless role is, is, is exactly right. Well, yeah, and in this particular case, there was that option, but then there are all these other movies where that trope and that character exist, and there's no alternative explanation, and you know all along that you're just waiting for the switch to finally fucking flip for them if they don't mm-hmm. die first or whatever. It's either way, super tedious. So Rebecca starts having visions of your sort of run of the mill backwoods folk horror. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Visions. Visions. Yeah. <laughs> Her daughter in decrepit spooky pagan scenarios. <laughs> with, Did you notice you know, how viscera and the usual there are like four separate occasions where the film cuts to a shot of three people in spooky masks standing out in the middle of the field and at least the first three are all so similar that they could have been the same shot just reused as stock footage i mean that would be economical i actually don't remember citing them at all outside of the bunny menacing scene I think that I might have been just... <laughs> yeah, that, that was the first time. Then that shot, I'm fairly sure, recurs two more times. And then there's another one that's framed basically the same, but it's darker outside. Like, it's, it's unreal. It crops up four times. Well, the, the dream sequences, and that's how the movie keeps trying to juice what we're watching. It's trying to inject some horror into it because it's basically... In theory, it's a slow burn because the whole movie is Rebecca going around and having increasingly odd encounters with the locals and starting to get the sneaking feeling that maybe, you know, the whole town is in on it. But because the movie doesn't actually want to commit to being a slow burn, we get these throwaway hallucinations, dream sequences, and they don't completely bog down the movie. I mean, this movie does not have as much of that fugue soup problem as some of the others that we've railed against in the past. Uh, but these scenes are almost uniformly worthless. Yeah, and, well, uh, you know, we we just, we got a cup of fugue soup this time, <laughs> as opposed to the full bowl. Exactly, not an entree, more of a side. Yes. There's a couple mantras that emerge at this point, one of which you had particular ire for. Oh you my god. Getting into this before we hit record. Uh, there's one which I found very underwhelming, as opposed to the one you hated, which is merely annoying the one that i kind of have my knives out for is he stands in the field and waits which is just sort of i mean it's meant to be threatening like oh who stands in the field what is he waiting for it's kind of it's trying to be a children of the corn he who walks behind the rose kind of thing but it just sounds very passive to me he sounds like a bored farmer Right, exactly. Or like, uh, oh, my, my damn plow broke. <laughs> Guess I better... <laughs> he stands in the fields and waits until his buddy brings the other plow. Yeah, he stands in the field and, and works on his chew tobacco. <laughs> yeah, so there's that one, and then there's the one that, as you point out, I absolutely loathed, which is all is as was. Which just sounds like a really shitty tongue twister. (laughs) (laughs) It's like one that's not very effective. (laughs) 
It's a mediocre tongue twister. That's yeah, right. <laughs> and, you know, it's irritating enough the first few times that it crops up, but then as we get building into the climax, there's sort of a, a song that opens with hair, blood, fire, sun, something, something, blah, 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 and then all is as was, all is as was. And so then we have to hear that mantra like dozens of times in the space yes. of only minutes. Once more with feeling. <laughs> Ugh. So I like some of the poking around the village. I don't like any of the nightmares, but we get some eerie incidents beginning to accrue. There's shots of just townsfolk cracking eggs open, and there's a rash of just miscarried chicks in people's eggs. Right. And then one of the old women in the town of Barrow encounters some kind of an entity in her hen house. And then she is found staggering around, yammering to herself in a rainstorm. And Rebecca kind of brings her inside. And then the two of them have a cryptic conversation that's steeped in the old woman's senility or, or, you know, she's whacked out because of something she witnessed. I liked all of that well enough. My favorite visual from this whole stretch is people start filling mason jars half up with blood and then hanging them from their doorsteps at like head height. It looks like the town is full of blood lanterns. It's like, I, and no one no one comments on it. Rebecca notices it and is just like, oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know how I missed that because I did not have my phone with me in the room when I was watching, so there was nothing that I could have been distracted by. I just fucking, I don't know, I blew that one. Well, usually that's my job. (laughs) Right, so (laughs) somebody had to. Somebody had to miss out on the cool visual, I guess. Great, it's the one of us that already didn't like the movie very much. (laughs) Uh, Another old woman, I think that she lives with the one who is now raving and bedridden. Yeah. Gives Rebecca an exposition dump to do with one of the town's founding fathers, Tobias Braun, who was put to death under torturous circumstances by the church authorities because he was worshipping Gallo Dog, I think, is the yeah. is the gist of it. And she also that's you know, who cares? But more importantly, she says that Jocelyn is the way he is because he also had a child go missing during the harvest some 10, 11, 12 years ago. And Rebecca thinks this is suspicious because none of the local PD or anybody mentioned this to her. Yeah. That her daughter wasn't the first. One of the, uh, speaking of mantras, at one point, the uh, old lady who's had the strange encounter in the hen house says repeatedly, off to the black barn, you know, off you go, off to the black barn with you, while doing the Rig and McNeil pissing her nightdress routine. Yeah, it's so aggressively telegraphed because the, you know, oh, yeah, reverse, was... <laughs> the reverse shot is at ankle height, shot through her ankles. It's like, there's only one thing that can happen here. She's right. going to piss on the floor. That's <laughs> I mean, Truly. I'm not. I'm not gonna say I would have been angry if she didn't, but it it almost yeah. reaches that level because of how that's the only thing that makes that shot make sense. Otherwise, it's just stupid cheated. framing. 
Yeah, no, I, I, I would have felt deprived had that not happened. <laughs> I was promised grandma piss by, <laughs> by the mise-en-scene. Uh, and he delivered, but no, he obviously should not have telegraphed it that way. The fucking Friedkin didn't. May he rest in peace. Yeah, And that's obviously what they're aping. Yes. The film's worst, I think, until maybe the very end, and certainly its oddest scene happens. It's got to be another fugue, although at this point the movie has kind of... I think this is the last of them, mercifully, but at this point the movie has kind of stopped signposting them. You know, you're, you, you, do, you are no longer getting the huh where the character starts awake when it's over. Right. Rebecca is in the woods, and she's pursuing someone maybe this was literally meant to have happened but if so i have even more questions and i have plenty either way she's pursuing a guy through the woods who shows up again during the climax and i had no idea who he was supposed to be we get one look at him at this point he's like yelling about how like i didn't take your daughter uh well all right here's all's right with the world again this is a plot point you missed that i did catch (laughs) So there's a scene where after the abduction takes place, Rebecca is off somewhere, gets a call from her husband, come back to the house. The police have found something and it's like a cell phone video. Somebody shot during the first night of the harvest festival and you can see Grace going off into the woods with whoever's dressed up as Galagog. And then at one point Galagog lifts his mask and subsequently, they successfully identify this guy as some local kook. Okay, I kind of sort of remember that. Yeah, and Rebecca and her husband at one point go out to the kook's grandfather's farm where the grandfather and the kook live. And there's a confrontation. The guy himself is not there, but granddad is angry. So, again, long story short, it's that guy that Rebecca finds in the woods and who is saying, you know... I didn't take your daughter, but also stop looking for her. Yeah, stop. I didn't take her. Stop looking for her. He says, I didn't take her four or five times. And then she says, what did you do with her? <laughs> it's like, lady, he's been very emphatic. <laughs> You're barking up the wrong tree. And we, we only get one good look at him this whole sequence. And he happens to be scrambling up an embankment like on all fours so it's just it's like she's just chasing this strange quadrupedal man through the woods at that point i was i was fully fed up and then the movie kind of won me back and then lost me again at the 11th hour yeah well him saying stop looking for her is also at odds with what happens when he shows up later where basically he's like i know how you can get your daughter back it's like, then why were you telling her to stop looking? Why didn't you just fucking tell her what you're telling her now, then? Well, and by that point, he's, she's already basically connected all the dots and sort of knows what she has to do anyway. So he's yeah, totally vestigial. And does, doesn't she also, during this sequence of chasing the guy in dogman form... Mm-hmm. In uh, what may or may not be a dream. <laughs> right. <laughs> Doesn't she also spot the Galogog Blair Witch off in, like, the distance in the woods? That, or is yeah, that a different I've, scene? I've forgotten about... No, that is this scene. It's like, you know, this ten-foot-tall kind of hulking shape uh, sort yeah. of starts to come out of the mist and the tree line. It's like something out of Antlers or The Ritual. Very much, yeah. Like something out of right out of Antlers. 
so I alluded to Rebecca connecting all the dots pretty much on her own. She does most of that when she goes to the local elementary school or Sunday school, not sure, probably both in a town of this size. And she is grilling the kid that was ominously chanting the night of the disappearance, hair, blood, etc. I know that you know what happened to her. And the kid says, you know, stick it up your arse, which is fine, you know, whatever. And then the whole... <laughs> all of the kids in the room start chanting up your arse up your arse and then i have to say the hackiest thing that willie barbells does in this whole movie and he does it repeatedly unfortunately <laughs> is you'll get this crescendo of strings that is invariably cut off by somebody slapping somebody else or by somebody <laughs> somebody pounding their fist on the table it happens over and over again this isn't even the last time it happens it happens no. again during the climax you know slap, and it just gets cut off it's like that's the only way he knows how to end that build-up it's the only payoff he can think of uh so she slaps the kid which is a foregone conclusion because again this is not the first time the movie has done this so you know the slap is coming because you hear those strings going. And <laughs> right. Then, improbably, this gets the kid talking, not just running out of the room with tears in her eyes. And she starts talking. At first, I like this. She says, we learn about... I can't remember. She must talk about... Rebecca, I mean, must ask her about the festival and about the Lord of Misrule and about Gallogog. And then the kid responds with, yeah, we learn about that in Nature Club. And I liked how innocuous that sounded, you know, nature club. But it's got a slight folk horror connotation because it's to do with the woods and the natural world. Mm -hmm. uh, and then all of that goodwill was squandered when she followed up with, and sometimes we learn about it in the secrets room. <laughs> it's like, okay, <laughs> you had me and then you lost me. As secrets room is a lot of things, but it is not innocuous, you know. No. It sounds like... If anything, it sounds a little pedophilic. I was going to say, like, the, the touchy no-no room. <laughs> yeah, or like, what's the Patton Oswalt routine? Uncle Touchy's naked, <laughs> naked puzzle, puzzle basement. basement. Yeah, right. You won't wear a shirt and you'll cry. <laughs> and Rebecca asks, what's the secrets room? And the obvious answer to that is, I can't tell you. But for some reason, <laughs> for some reason, that's not what the kid says. She says, oh, right this way. I'll no, show you, you see, the secrets room. You see, the room and access to it is not a secret. It's just the place where they share secrets. So I, okay. it's... it's... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that seems it's to be the case. Totally fine. So they go into the secrets room, which is in like a little recess, and it's very true detective in there. There's like a lot of child's drawings and vines and well, and know, it's it's like shit a marionette. that was all during the opening title sequence, wasn't it? I think you're probably right about that. Yeah. So this is where we get the rest of the exposition, basically, to completely bring us up to speed. Grace was offered to this deity as a gift in order to, I guess, secure a good harvest or like a season of bountiful boons, blah, blah, blah. And then on the basis of this, Rebecca goes to talk to her husband and enlist his services to no avail. <laughs> He's still not having What are you babbling about? Yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, 
you know, he says, let, let the police handle it. And she's, you know, she says the police are in on it. And he's. You're taking crazy it. pills. Yeah. So the last night of the festival is upon us. It is a candlelight vigil for grace. And it is just overtly not even pagan, just like satanic at this point. You know, it's, it's a, it's a black mass partway through the husband shows up and is like, Oh, I fucked up. (laughs) (laughs) Just bowled over by his own stupidity. At last, there is yet another crescendo slap in this sequence. This time it's the husband slapping Jocelyn. Mm -hmm. And then he is put to death in, I think, the same manner as Tobias Braun. He's, or, you know, a similar enough manner. Yeah, I mean, it's not pitch. They just cover his burlap sack in gasoline instead. Right. Excuse me, petrol. Right. (laughs) Quite right. (laughs) Uh, They put a a, a sack on his head and they set fire to it. And um, talk about a a thankless role. He has to pivot in this scene from being completely useless up till now. Useless to the point where we figure he has to be in on it to now being the woman's sort of shoulder to cry on and this kind of indomitable, like his, 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 he has like a heroic last stand where he's telling her not to be afraid. Do I look afraid? No, as I know you're going to get our daughter back. And it's like, man, he should have, if you're going to make him like a useless weasel, then let him be a useless weasel. You know, I mean, I don't know why he has to suddenly be, fucking king leonidas or whatever it's just it's it's not you know if you were gonna put a burning burlap sack on my head i would go out squealing like a pig and you know he screams but he i don't know it's it's like it's like they treat it like he's william wallace for some reason i don't get that at all (laughs) it's just a, a very sudden swerve for his character so anyway now she is actually on her own although she basically was before there's some mucking about in the dark the cult attacks her house sets fire to her car this might have even happened earlier and no, i don't think it could have uh, whatever anyway this is where she runs into the guy from before the quadruped <laughs> and, he, and he's like you have to get your daughter back and she's like yeah okay <laughs> and oh no that did happen before because there's this sort of weird wrinkle where it looks like you know i thought it was the husband getting a scythe in the back but it, it occurs to me that it's actually this guy Yes. Who gets done in by the Lord of Misrule. Okay, that so it's a little less befuddling when the husband shows up a scene later and then they set fire to him. Regardless, this all culminates in Rebecca going to the Black Barn, what the lady was raving about some scenes back. And she has an encounter with Galogog and her daughter is returned to her. Galogog, I mean, it is straight out of antlers. He kind of like leans down and sniffs at her head and deems her acceptable she offers like a hair sacrifice but i don't even think it was her hair because it was blonde and she's a brunette yeah i don't understand the logistics of how the fucking gift giving is supposed to work and i'm gonna complain about that after the break for sure yeah so she and this twist I, i kind of appreciate again more so in theory and on paper than in actuality she emerges from the black I keep wanting to call it the Black Lodge, but that's Twin Peaks. She <laughs> right. comes out of the Black Barn, which is not supposed to happen, and she has her daughter, which is definitely not supposed to happen. And Jocelyn is like, wow, what the hell? And she says, 12 years ago, or however many, when your son went missing, 
you were supposed to do what I just did. You were supposed to have an audience with Gallo Gog, and you didn't, and you were prevented from doing so by your own cowardice. And so he has chosen me as his new Lord of Misrule. And it's all a little bit Sith Padawan, you know, but I kind of <laughs> like, I, I don't know, as a reveal, I think it's perfectly fine. And then the whole town turns on Jocelyn, and he kind of assents to it, and then she is reinstated as vicar, but an evil vicar now, and we know this because she's wearing dark lipstick. And she's got long, dark talons, basically. These sharp and, I have to say, fake-looking fingernails. Well, it's... it's The funny thing about it is they're not she's like... like a, she's like a mall goth, but she's supposed to be Darth Maul. <laughs> Darth Maul goth. There we go. I, 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 you found it. Thank uh, you. But it's weird, too, because these nails that she has now have dark polish on them. But the thing is... She's had dark nail polish on the whole time. The only difference is that now they're longer and pointy. Mm -hmm. Which is stupid because the whole town, Jocelyn included, always dressed very unassumingly. Yes. That's part of the folk horror tradition is that they look just like you or I until they start dressing up like foxes and bears and then you better watch out. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, that ending is idiotic. But uh, overall... I would give it a 5 out of 10, maybe even a five and a half on a good day. More after the break. My daughter went missing. I need your prayers to be a guiding light. Now, please, pray with me. No. Your lord does not have your child. Then who has taken my daughter? Every year we drive him out. But he stands in the fields and waits. Who stands in the fields and waits? Hello, listeners. It's Jim, here as always during the break to tell you some stuff you probably already know. Please follow us on Twitter at ShockDoctorsPod, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash ShockDoctorsPod, or check us out on Apple Podcasts. The podcast is also available on Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. If you've got an idea for a movie you'd like us to check out, Feel free to send us a DM on social media or email us at shockdoctorspod at gmail.com. And now, back to the show. I know my crisis. He has your girl. And in return, you will give us great miracles. Time to revel in chaos. You're gonna get our little girl back. This is how we love. The midnight sun will rise. And you will see his glory. And we're back. So let's talk about that ending a little bit more. By all means. I think it's bullshit. (laughs) I think it's complete fucking bullshit. I'm not saying that regurgitating the trope of no, no, take me instead would have been that fulfilling or engaging or exciting, but that is at least much less toothless than I guess you don't have to take either one of us. 
Right, we're both going to be just fine. Totally fine. You have lost the husband at that point, so it's not like they didn't lose anything, but he was... But Galogog didn't do that. Right. People did that. Now, maybe that's what Galogog wanted, but maybe not. But probably not. I mean, her understanding of Galagog seems to be that he's, if not benign, then at least a much more neutral force than what Jocelyn Witchdad was making him out to be. She kind of lays the blame for everything at his feet, and now she's going to reform, <laughs> you know, Galagog's good name. There's that kind of undercurrent to it that she's going to be a little more benevolent in her stewardship of this town, which that is is weak sauce. I think. If they're going to be absorbed into the fold, her and her daughter, it should be a little bit more of like a Midsommar mind break scenario where like she's the, what do they call her, the Harvest Queen in that movie. But it's Florence Pugh's just kind of like a dead-eyed stare, you know, coming yeah. out of that that floral wreath and she's, you know, she's lost. Yeah. But instead it's sort of empowering and that I could definitely do without that and the nails and the lipstick. Yeah, and during their final shouty speechifying confrontation jocelyn and rebecca jocelyn is saying things like i brought great wonders to this place or something along those lines and then rebecca says you brought only bad stuff basically (laughs) (laughs) high flying language of course but Uh that's essentially what she says it's like it's not clear what either of them seems to think they're talking about specifically Like, this is not a town that you get the sense has been struggling under a great weight. You know, it's not like, God forbid, Evil Dies Tonight, Haddonfield, where it's just been haunted by this awful event from years past. Right. The movie doesn't even put in the necessary legwork to establish, you know, that they have a specific crop that they're known for that has been failing. I mean, like, even the Nick Cage Wicker Man did that much. You know, killing me won't bring back, back your, your goddamn, goddamn honey. honey. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and when you're putting in less legwork than 2006 Wicker Man, that's a pretty low bar that you've just limboed under. Mm-hmm. The other thing that pisses me off is that there's no indication that this is just a regular occurrence. Like, I didn't get the sense at all. That it's just like, oh, once a year, somebody's kid has to get sacrificed to Galagog, or at least that's the narrative that Jocelyn's been putting out for the last 12 years, so maybe the townsfolk have needlessly sacrificed a dozen of their own children, and that's the evil that Jocelyn has brought down on the town through his cowardice and his misunderstanding of what Galagog actually wants. But there's none of that. That's true. As far as we know, they have only ever set, well, other than like way back in 1619 or whatever, back with Tobias Braun, but since the ritual was brought back more recently, but still years ago, there's literally no implicit or explicit indication that any more than two children have gone missing. Yeah, two children in upwards of a decade. Right. And, and theoretically, two children in the space of the last 80 or 90 years, however it's right, been since right. they started doing the festival again. It's very silly. Yeah, I mean, silliness 
abounds. There's a bit, it's it's before the final confrontation, but the, there's a bit during all of this climactic kind of fracas that I didn't care for, where they like try to turn it into the lottery, where she's like <laughs> looking at individual townspeople going like, how could you? We, <laughs> we, we, we sit in your pub every Tuesday night. You know, you and I, we played bridge that one time. It's just like... <laughs> You've known them all for less than a year. Just accept that they played you. You're not going to appeal to the better angels of their fucking nature. Just pack it in. That was nonsense. One thing, other than just the fact that it recurs in a way that feels like stock footage, that bothers me about that recurring shot of just the three people and, like, the rabbit and the deer and some other mask standing out in the field all together. It's like... It's always the same three. Who are these yeah. three specific people supposed to be? Because there's no there's no indication of a triumvirate in the right. town. There's just Jocelyn and then a grab bag of townsfolk. It's not like it's supposed to be Jocelyn and two other people. Also, it couldn't have been Jocelyn anyway because none of the three standing out in the field has on the Farquad hat. So right. it's, it's just, why is it three? What's the significance? It's just arbitrary, but not in a way that's interesting. Well, I, yeah, I, I, I take issue with that too. At first I liked the triumvirate, you know, I like when, when they were just silently goading Grace into killing the bunny, which she does not actually do. The bunny later emerges unharmed, yeah. uh, if memory serves. But I was expecting something to come of those three sinister figures and nothing ever does however i do like that jocelyn is the guy the like the lone kind of patriarch the authority figure because at least in theory on paper i like the idea and i wish that they had leaned into this more and made him even more of kind of a holy fool than he was made out to be to begin with before his heel turn i like the idea of the village idiot who is actually pulling all the strings, you know, and the whole town is actually worshipping the guy who's, or, or not worshipping, but, the, you know, he's their conduit to some, you know, the higher power that they're all worshipping. He's the guy who's calling all the shots. I like that he, because that just adds to the sort of topsy-turvy feast of fools, you know, today the ugly man is handsome, today the, the rich man is, or the, the poor man is king. That kind of feeling of everything being flipped upside down. Nemo, man, you gotta wake up, etc. <laughs> <laughs> this shit is topsy-turvy. But they should have leaned into that more, and then he could have, I think, even been more of like a sort of squirrely, raggedy, Manson-y, Rasputin-y kind of figure, even into the end game. Played up that holy fool village idiot kind of aspect of the performance, because it basically drops completely away once everybody's cards are on the table. Then he's a a smooth operator and you know the performance kind of loses something yeah something else that bugged me a bit the movie it's in this weird liminal space regarding the impression that it gives you at least prior to the climax when again all the cards are on the table but prior to that it's not clear what messages it's trying to give you about the culpability of the whole town because yeah, there are seemingly no hard feelings once Jocelyn gets his comeuppance. Well, there's that too, but just leading into it, there's, for the most part, not a ton of, like, 
spooky interactions with members of the townsfolk as opposed to, say, in Wicker Man or your typical folk horror film where you interact with townsfolk and most of them are at least kind of off. Yeah, everybody's drinking the Kool-Aid, so to speak. You don't really get any of that indication, but you also don't feel like anybody's really trying to hide anything. I don't even know precisely what I'm saying, but it's just, it's not clear whether the movie's trying to drop breadcrumbs to lead you to, hey, they're all in on it, or whether the movie thinks it's completely blindsiding you, or what. There's a scene where I don't even know how to describe these people. They're just this couple that appears to be like maybe the closest thing that Rebecca and her husband have to friends in town. They're the parents of the stick it up your arse girl who prior to her being weird appears to be maybe Grace's best friend in the town. So they're all kind of friends. But there's a scene where the couple and the daughter are all in their house and they're starting to do the ritual. And this is well before it's been amply revealed that everyone's in on it. So it's like, so is it supposed to be a secret to the audience? Is this supposed to be dramatic irony? I, I, what is going on? <laughs> I just... it, it, is, it is very odd. The husband's oddness contributes to it, the way that everyone is just so unflustered about the disappearance. And that's right out of the Wicker Man, you know, everyone gives Edward Woodward, everyone acts like he's he's just kind of like butting his nose in where it doesn't belong, and he's the only person who cares, you know, right. that Rowan Morrison has vanished off the face of creation, even though he never met her, has no personal investment, unlike, presumably, everyone who lives in this on, on this tiny island who knew her intimately, but who could give two shits. <laughs> but I, I think that sort of insouciance does something for the movie i get sort of the liminal thing you're describing the bad and accidental feeling ambiguity that the movie fosters however i think that it adds to a certain cheerfulness that i found kind of creepy like there's a scene where some neighbors it might even be the same family the up your arse parents uh may or may not have been i i think i remember them being a little older anyway they come up and they just start setting up for dinner in this kind of like chin up love, you know, kind of way. And everyone's kind of just like having a grand old time. Like, well, where, where are you sitting? I'll sit over here. And at the head of the table is Rebecca looking shell-shocked. And then everyone else, including her husband, is just kind of enjoying themselves. And the world keeps turning. I don't know if you remember that scene, but it gave me the, it gave me the willies a little bit. And it was very unusual because nothing overtly ominous actually happens. It's actually the fact that everything seems so normal. And of course, the strings are doing what they incessantly do in this movie and ratcheting up. But it's the only time that the movie does that that I can remember where nobody gets slapped. So (laughs) I'll I'll let it off with a warning. Uh, If memory serves, it's worse than the slap because I think it just sort of cuts out and then the film immediately cuts to Rebecca like walking into her daughter's room or something. And it's, it's... it's such an anti-climax. It's not like yeah, well, I was that, I, mean, I was that, begging that for the slap, but <laughs> I mean that points to William Brent Bell having no idea how to cut off that momentum without somebody getting a palm to the face or somebody five fingers saying yeah. something to the face. Yeah, right, precisely, or slap. somebody uh, banging their fist on some hard flat surface. Yeah, 
I know the scene you're talking about, and I don't know. It just it didn't it didn't do anything for me. It was a little bit creepy in terms of the behavior of like the two old women who lived together, one of whom pulled the pissing on the floor routine. Right. I, th- I think that's really what I was responding to. They had like a slightly witchy, like Suspiria kind of thing going on where they just seem not right in a way that's hard to put your finger on. But the couple that they're friends with, and then th- I think a couple other people might also just sort of barge into their house. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but the couple, the sort of chin-up routine really just feels... I mean, again, I I also suspected they were probably in on it, but it also feels more like just keep a stiff upper lip thing than an obfuscation sort of thing. Right. So, I again, mostly that scene did nothing for me. Yeah, I mean, as... As per usual, I'm. I, this happened not that long ago. It was only a few episodes back, and I can no longer remember what the movie was, but I admitted I am a little embarrassed by how effective the smokescreen of her being a vicar was in, like, the first half of the movie, because I just figured, you know, like, some of these have to be God-fearing people. Like, it's a packed house. The pews are buckling under their weight. and no they are all you know without exception to a man worshiping gallo gog after hours but i like that she's the vicar and i even kind of like again i keep saying this on paper in theory i like how it plays into the climax because when she's grilling the little kid in the secrets room (laughs) the little kid says something about how gallo gog wanted your daughter so that it would draw you to him Mm -hmm. Uh, and i figured you know once you find out what happens to the progenitor of the cult whose name escapes me tobias something braun braun right tobias braun once you find out what happens to tobias braun you figure okay he just he being polygogit you know pie whack it he (laughs) wants to just really eviscerate a vicar he just wants to stick it to the church yeah basically Uh, And I figure, okay, that's all well and good. But then it would appear that he actually selected her because he deemed her a worthier disciple than Jocelyn. And as Sith Padawan as that is, I can kind of get into it. And I like the idea of this sort of chess game happening on like a kind of elevated plane where we can only dimly sense, you know, like, you know, she's just a pawn. She's being drawn into the orbit of this thing that she doesn't understand. That's kind of nuts and bolts Lovecraft. I like that. But again, not so much in execution. It's a sort of like, it's, it's exactly how I feel about Jocelyn's character and him being characterized one way and then that characterization kind of vanishing in a puff of smoke after his heel turn. You know, a lot of stuff works here in theory and on paper, but not so much in practice. Another minor thing that I didn't like about the ending and jocelyn's demise again it's stupid it's small but when it becomes clear that he's on his own and rebecca has the endorsement of Gallagog and everyone oh, else is it kind when of, he says take this pain from me well yeah, that that's dumb but that's not even what i was going to talk about somebody steps in from the circle of people and is clearly holding a crossbow. You can see it in, like, this big wide that you see the whole... But then that person stands there for, like, 30 seconds while this conversation is wrapping up. So that's kind of silly. 
And then yeah, he gets right. like the guy's he, checking his watch. <laughs> Jocelyn gets hit his... with one crossbow bolt, and then I think he gets stabbed with a pitchfork. Uh huh. And then another arrow comes in from the opposite <laughs> side. <laughs> and then he gets tossed on the fire. It's, right. It, it's so. It seems awfully haphazard and not in a way that's satisfying. I mean, obviously, it didn't have to be like all ritualistically planned out and if the whole town's gonna turn on him there might be a certain amount of chaos but it doesn't reach chaos again it's just it's, like it's, right. it's it arrow with it and then, pitchfork yeah. other arrow from different place okay he's mostly dead let's toss him on the pyre yeah it's it's a very lackluster and insufficiently anarchic ending for a character who styled himself as the lord of misrule <laughs> you know it's it, like, yeah. two arrows and a pitchfork and that's it should have been you know hundreds of arrows like throne of blood or you know a couple more pitchforks and a scythe and, you know the, the the pitchfork i have to say i kind of liked the arrows i mean i the second one just made me laugh but the arrows yes. I was fine with. It was the guy running in and poking him with the pitchfork that seemed like the wimpiest part of the coup de gras. Well, you know? it, it, all, it was also cut in such a way that, again, maybe I just fucked up like how I didn't see the blood lanterns. But it seems like you don't really see the pitchfork go in. I think you're right about that. I think you hear him go like, and then the next shot is of like this guy who was not in the previous shot, you know, extricating <laughs> the business end of a pitchfork from right. his <laughs> It's just, you know, slop, like they didn't get enough coverage, so they just had to kind of hack it together. Mm-hmm. My biggest issue with the movie is that there just isn't enough for Rebecca to do, and the whole thing kind of drags. Uh, I mean, the silliness I could do without some of, particularly right at the very end with the nails and the lipstick, but its biggest problem structurally is that there's just not enough meat on those bones, I found. And I I found myself kind of craving, um, and I had misgivings about the second half of Barbarian, but I do like the way that it's split clean down the middle the way that it is mm-hmm. with that sudden pivot. I think that if you do that, if you give the audience one big wallop right in the middle where you say, here's the deal, you know, and the monster emerges into the light, literally or figuratively, and then the second half of the movie is some new schmuck, you know, <laughs> coming into coming into town. You know, you can't do that for every horror movie, but when it works, it works like gangbusters, I think. Obviously, Psycho operates that way. There's a movie called City of the Dead, also from 1960, that kills its heroine much the same way that Psycho does, unclear. They're so closely contemporaneous that I think it's unlikely that either inspired the other. Obviously, Psycho's based on a book, so that, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe, maybe City of the Dead was inspired by Robert Block. I don't know, but good movie, not as good as Psycho. But this is a, I think, very useful break glass in case of emergency device that you can resort to if your mystery is running out of steam. And this mystery definitely began to run out of steam when we were like an hour or so in. It's relatively long, too. It's like an hour 40. Could have easily been 80, 85 minutes. Yeah. One other thing. I I can't believe I'm talking this much about their friend couple, but... It relates specifically to a scene we've already talked about. After Rebecca and Stick It Up Your Arse Girl go down into the secrets room and share the exposition dump, 
her dad shows up back upstairs and is kind of calling out to her. And after the girl and, and Rebecca go back upstairs, he very angrily confronts her, which, which in and of itself obviously makes sense if he heard from the other kids that like, hey, the vicar just slapped your daughter in the face. Um, <laughs> he is angrily doing But then he grabs her by the chin very forcefully and is like, you know, basically, how do you like it sort of a thing. But then she starts talking about all this bad stuff is being taught to our children in the secrets room. And then he gets all like placid and like, oh, there's nothing bad going on in town. Yeah, he here. Tur- he, he just... turns on a dime and he starts like shushing her and going like, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> we're all friends here. It's like we're, we're supposed to just like we got men in black flashed. Like we're just supposed to forget about the fact that 12 seconds beforehand he looked ready to rip off her jawbone. Well, I, I almost, I mean, it, it plays awkwardly, but I almost liked it because it's like when she starts criticizing the teachings that go on in the secrets room. <laughs> they should have just stuck with Nature Club, I swear to God. Yeah, uh, It's like when she starts criticizing the teachings, he has, like, she says his trigger phrase, like he's a Manchurian candidate or something, and his, like, cult conditioning kicks in and he has to start playing nice and doing damage control and you get the sense that it's very deeply ingrained i had to really read between the lines on that one because he does turn on a dime and i but as with so many things i i I like it i like the idea i don't like the way it's actually executed i did pick up on some of that as well and that makes it not completely brain dead uh-huh. But yeah, still, it just it plays super weird. Yes. Far be it for me to say this movie should have been longer at any point, because I agree with you. It probably would have been better served to be 85 to 90 minutes rather than 105. But that scene, if it could have been allowed to play out for another like 30 seconds in the middle there, where maybe his rage just sort of gradually dissipates and he lets her go and, you know, right. stomps around the room a little bit, letting his anger out. Been, if it hadn't just been quite so volcanic to begin with, if he didn't have to rein it in quite so much, but uh, it's a it's a issue of modulation, yes. I think, or of time, as you're pointing out. Yeah, either, either way. Because, yeah, it's just way too much whiplash to go from, I have grabbed you essentially by the throat, <laughs> to, we're all friends here. You know, like, it just doesn't work. You know, he does, like, almost lift her off the ground like Darth Vader or something. It's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's a lot to have to take back. Yeah. So, let's see. I am, as I said, an easy lay for folk horror. Big fan of the first season of True Detective, but who isn't? Big mm-hmm. fan even of relatively obscure and not widely celebrated stuff like an HBO miniseries that you and I watched called The Third Day, I think. Yeah. Liked that a fair bit. That actually, it only occurs to me now, also does the barbarian thing where halfway through it switches to a new protagonist once the first protagonist has seen too much. Right. Uh, The difference is that it happens after, I think, two episodes out of four rather than at the half hour mark or whatever. There is a book I've been meaning to read which I recently picked up, actually, called Harvest Home. It's by uh, Thomas Tryon, and I've not read it, but I have seen 
<laughs> of course, this will come as no surprise to you at all. I have seen the 70s made-for-TV movie based on it, because <laughs> uh, I went on a big made-for-TV horror movie from the 70s kick. Uh, there was a glut of them. It was a whole cottage industry, like an ABC movie of the week, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. I watched a whole bunch of them, mainly during the pandemic. And Dark Secret of Harvest Home is the name of that one. And it's not great, but there's something about watching like a badly beat up copy on YouTube where you're like almost viewing it in under the optimal conditions, you know, because it feels like any sufficiently degraded and obscure piece of vintage horror media takes on just kind of a haunted quality, I find. It might even be spookier now than it was when it was originally broadcast. Betty Davis is in it. It's a very late career Betty Davis turn. She's one of the, um, actually, I can't remember if she's one of the town elders or if she's like the grandma. I think that she's, she's a widow she's a fortune. The... Widow. Okay. So she's not a nice grandma. No. <laughs> that settles that. And that was, I was erring on that side anyway, but yeah, it's creepy enough in kind of like a, um, sub children of the corn sort of way. Narrated by Donald Pleasance, apparently. I don't remember that at all. But, you know, when with movies made for television, you know, they could exist in a lot of different forms and different cuts of varying lengths. I should revisit it is the, the obvious takeaway here. Uh, I can't. I think it might be like a two-parter, so it might have like like a 180-minute runtime or something like that. I remember it being, you know, on the long side, but it was probably broadcast over two nights or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, let's see here. Other than that, so that, that's my obscure movie pick, or, you know, pseudo-movie, TV movie pick. Everything else, let's see, I mentioned The Lottery earlier. There's another Shirley Jackson short story that I like that is fresh in my memory because Bees and I, every time we have to drive up from Pittsburgh to Michigan to see our families for, you know, the holidays like we just did, uh, it's a lot of driving. Bees does all the driving, and so... I try to make myself useful and keep them awake by reading to them sometimes. Uh, typically horror fiction, almost exclusively horror stories. Most recently, on our, on our last road trip, I read a Shirley Jackson short story called The Summer People, which I really like, which is about a pair of late middle age, uh, like a man and a wife, who have a vacation home that they go to every summer in this quaint little town. And for the first time ever, they decide to stay after Labor Day. They're going to linger for just a couple more weeks. And everyone around town kind of does not take kindly to that. But in initially very folksy kind of downplayed way where they're mostly just like, huh, that's, you know, no one stays in the house after Labor Day. And, you know, but it's, but it's so, the response is so uniform that it's kind of eerie and alienating. And then strange things start happening and it becomes apparent that they're not wanted at the degree to which they're not wanted it, it's it's a real slow burn but really gives me the heebie-jeebies and what is the other one? Oh, i also read the white people by arthur Mackin, which was written i want to say in like the last decade of the 19th century or the first decade of the 20th i couldn't say which he was like roughly a contemporary of lovecraft's but i think slightly predated him but wrote the same kind of weird fiction it's about the bulk of it is a little girl's diary uh, and she's talking in kind of whimsical narnia-esque terms about all of these adventures that she's been on and all of these 
strange, wonderful experiences she has had, but they are from a more detached... Basically, what she's recounting is, like, adventures with the fey folk, you know, and she's done, like, such and such ritual, and she's cryptically alluding to all of this stuff that she daren't actually put into writing. And it's a big... Reading it aloud is a, an experience, because the whole thing is written with no paragraph breaks. It's just this breathless avalanche of you know and <laughs> and then and then i did this and i learned about the alphabet of brim and the thing of the hublaba you know all of the end but it's it's just kind of it's a trip you know it makes you feel like you're um reading something occult you know that you weren't meant to lay eyes on and but it's mediated through that kind of childish innocence and obliviousness which makes it sing it's all it's saddled with a kind of unfortunate long-winded prologue which i only read half of when we were on the road but um that's uh if you can get through that and i i'm even kind of a prologue apologist where that where that story is concerned but (laughs) that's neither here nor there i wasn't going to subject bees to the whole thing anyway that story is very good. Summer People by Shirley Jackson is very good. Both of them. I mean, Summer People is not folk horror, but it's in terms of quaint towns where the people don't have your best interests at heart, you know, and that that, that, that feeling of paranoia, it evokes yeah. that expertly. So both of those are worth a read, and Dark Secret of Harvest Home may or may not be worth a watch. It depends on whether you share my proclivities. <laughs> So folk horror is obviously a rich subgenre, a lot of a lot of options there. Even if you drill down further to specifically British folk horror, mm-hmm. many of the best ones are set in rural England. Yeah. It's their most important cultural export, as far as I'm concerned. That and <laughs> Christmas ghost stories, but there's a lot of overlap there. Right. So. so obviously, as we've said, Wicker Man is the granddaddy of them all, really. Even more recent stuff, we were ambivalent about men, but it has folk horror flavorings that we kind of liked. Yeah, um, I took umbrage with it because I thought it was like folk horror cosplay. You know, it sure. was doing, I remember complaining that it did just the bare minimum to be considered folk horror and was spiritually wasn't really a folk horror piece. But yeah, worth a look. In the past, we've recommended Apostle. Mm-hmm. The movie with Dan Stevens. I'm going to recommend, I don't think I've recommended this before. I was trying to find something I haven't recommended before. And again, with folk horror, it's tricky because we watch a fair number of them. But I'm going to recommend The Lair of the White Worm. Hell yeah. It's a Ken Russell film from 1988. And it's about this, it's called The Lampton Worm. But it's really more of a serpent and it's this, again, British, English specifically, folk tale about this creature that was slain by a knight or something, but its skull is dug up by an archaeologist, and there's this woman who's kind of a vampire serpent woman who sort of worships this creature, and she is at odds with the archaeologist and his social circle. It's mostly a dark comedy. I mean, almost exclusively, in fact, and it is pretty funny. Well, it's got a pre-fame Hugh Grant in it, which lends to its kind of comedic allure. Yes. If not pre-fame, then at least, you know, pre-rom-com leading man fame. Right, well, and also also a pre-fame Peter Capaldi, 
who, oh, yeah. who plays the archaeologist. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's got a lot of good stuff going on. I watched that, I think, last year, which is to say not 2023, but uh, 2022, because my internal clock still hasn't turned over, I guess. Uh, it's January 4th. You know, we got at least another week of grace. Yeah, we're close. But yeah, Halloween 2022, I watched that, and I think The Hidden with Kyle MacLachlan. Oh, that movie rules. That, <laughs> it that's does. A, that's a fun, that's a fucking fun double feature. Yeah, they were both available on the Criterion channel at that time. And I'm like, I'm going to watch a couple of horror movies that I haven't seen before this Halloween. So that's what I did. But anyway, yeah, Lair of the White Worm. That is my recommendation in addition to the obvious for folk horror. Well, Galagog has been appeased by a sacrifice of nothing, apparently. So blonde hair (laughs) (laughs) and no blood or whatever else. So, uh, until next time, I'm Jim Smith. I'm Matt Jernadizzi. And we are the shock doctors. We'll see you later. As always, we have some acknowledgements. Our music was composed by Will Connor. Audio for the bumpers was taken from Lord of Misrule trailer number one, 2023, uploaded by Rotten Tomatoes Indie. All rights reserved. Our next episode will be up on Sunday, January 21st, and we will be discussing Night Swim, a movie about a haunted swimming pool. See you then.